if your life isn't working the way you want it to be working and you're not thriving and happy and, you know, full octane doing your thing, you probably have some trauma. And it that you know it doesn't have to be a forever life sentence. It's not a mental illness. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But trauma is an injury. I tell people it's like your brain gets sucker punched by life, and it heals. This is your Kickass Life Podcast, episode number three fifty eight, with guest Britt Frank. This is the Your Kickass Life Podcast with Andrea Owen, a no BS guide to self help and badassery. Because ladies, let's face it, life's too short for it to not kick ass. And here's your host, the girl who serves it up straight with a side of crazy, Andrea Owen. Hey there, ass kickers. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. I am so glad that you are here. I have been head down finishing up this book, which I know it feels like, it feels like I've been talking about it forever and ever, amen. I don't know if it feels that way for all of you, but I am contracted to turn in my manuscript on November 1st. So as I'm recording this, that's just a couple of weeks away and I'm putting the finishing touches on it. And one of my favorite parts of writing both this book and my last book is writing the introduction. I don't know, partly because I feel like it is more personal. I am writing you kind of a love letter. I mean, it's it's literally dear reader. Like I'm writing <laughs> I'm writing it to you. And uh, in this particular book, I'm talking about what brought me to write this book. And it to be perfectly honest with you, and I, I write about this in the introduction, it came from a place of anger. And there is just such, you know, I've told all of you that I am familiar with anger. It feels very familiar. And I'm also not afraid of my anger, which I know many, many women are, not not all, but many. And so for me, it is part of my passion. It's part of my drive. It it's what pushes me forward to not only be the best version of myself, but to be the best leader for all of you to talk about what has been bestowed on me to talk about. I truly believe that the messages that I put out on the show and in my books are sort of downloaded to me from something bigger than me, from the universe, from the common thread that we all have that is love, whatever whatever you want to call it. And I channel that into these books. And more specifically, I channel that into the introduction where I'm sort of kicking it off and writing you this love letter. So that's what I was working on this morning and just felt compelled to tell you about it. I also uh, wrote a little poem that's going to go in the beginning of the book. It's it's pretty short, but it just, it came to me one day and I hand wrote it out and I happened upon it in my notes. I wrote it a few months ago. I wrote it during COVID and I was like, this has to go in the book. This has to go in the very beginning of the book. So I'm excited for you to read that. It comes out August, 2021. I know it seems like a lifetime away, but alas, that is how the publishing industry works. It goes into a, a bunch of edits and all of that. So so thank you for staying with me and and thank you for sharing the excitement in this book. In the next few episodes, I will share with you the title. And I, you know, just gonna drip out a little bit of information, 
little bit at a time. I am also very excited to bring you today's guest. Britt Frank is someone who was recommended to me by a colleague, and a couple of colleagues, actually. I specifically put the word out that I needed somebody to come on to talk about healing from really difficult or abusive relationships, traumatic relationships, maybe even relationships with narcissists, and Britt's name came up. I learned so much in this episode. You will hear me having head explosions, aha moments, having to pause (laughs) as, as I am thinking about my own life and my own past, and I'm really excited to to have you listen and and learn from her as well. So for those of you that don't know her, let me tell you a little bit about Britt. Britt Frank is a trauma therapist, teacher, and speaker who specializes in the science of stuck. Britt's work empowers people to understand the inner mechanisms of their brains and bodies. When we know how things work, the capacity for choice is restored and life can and does change. She received her undergraduate from Duke University and her master's from the University of Kansas, where she is now an award-winning adjunct professor. Britt is also a somatic experiencing practitioner and level one trained in internal family systems. So without further ado, here is Britt. Britt, thank you so much for being here. Hi, Andrea. I'm so happy to be here. I am excited because my friend, our mutual friend, Nicole Whiting, I was asking around for, I don't think I told you this. So I specifically asked, I said, who do you know out there? Who are the experts who help women heal from narcissists? (laughs) (laughs) Hi, I'm Britt. She she texts me back. She's like, Britt Frank, you need to have her on. So it's, it's one of those things that I haven't had anybody on specifically to talk about this, but I have personal experience in this and it's just something that's been on my radar, I think. I think more and more people are are talking about it. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to kind of start with, let's start with the term narcissist because I think it gets thrown around so much. It it even has become like a name calling type of thing. Like people are no longer assholes, they're narcissists. <laughs> so can you can you tell us what exactly that is, maybe even from a clinical standpoint, and you know, maybe how does someone know that they're they might be in a relationship with someone or from their past? I am so glad that you're talking about this. And really the clinical world has not caught up. You don't, I mean, I didn't learn about this in grad school or in post-grad training or even in trauma training. I learned this because I lived it and then I had to learn it. And then there are very few people in the clinical world actually doing this work. So I'm so, so glad it's getting picked up in mainstream. That said, like you said, the word gets totally tossed around. So what is a narcissist? First, let's talk about narcissism is a quality that we all have. Everyone has Mm -hmm. shades of narcissism. You do, I do. And it's just a self-protection mechanism where we focus on our image at, you know, the expense of what's real. And I think we all do that too degree. Now, a spectrum of narcissism has super like low ends, people who just don't give a shit and they're like, this is me, take it, whatever. The high, high end is really what we're talking about when we're talking about narcissists. You know, the malignant, I will say it's just kind of dark. It feels really evil when you're in it. Um, People who are so high up the spectrum that they are choosing really to not be human anymore. It's an addiction. High level narcissism is an addiction to self-protection by any means necessary. Interesting. Okay. 
It, it's fascinating because when I talk about it, you know, and mostly if I'm, I'm talking about my, I have an ex-husband and an ex-boyfriend that I had to back to back and they had very uh, similar uh, qualities. And it was, uh, you know, if you look at where I was in my life, it, it was all a perfect storm. But when I talk about those relationships, I'm careful. And I say, I don't know if they were like clinical narcissists, but they definitely had narcissistic tendencies. So clinical narcissists, I got into it on Instagram this last week about that. You know, well, narcissists have to be diagnosed by a licensed clinician. Well, I am a licensed clinician and I can tell you narcissists don't seek treatment. Narcissists I like, I don't think they go to therapy. They don't go to therapy. <laughs> I mean, occasionally, but really narcissism is the only issue where the symptoms show up in the friends and family, not the person who has the thing. Like there's no other thing. If I'm depressed, you're not going to all of a sudden be laying on your couch. But narcissism mm. is the only clinical issue where symptoms are presented in the sufferers of you know friends and family. Narcissists can't be clinically diagnosed, and it's super rare. So I will stand toe to toe with anyone who says they have to be diagnosed by a clinician. If you think you were involved with a narcissist, look, we don't have to split hairs over the words. If you if it was bad and you were in chaos and crazy making and so confused about what was real and who you are and where you are, we'll just call that. Yes, you were in a relationship with a narcissist. Mm-hmm. I think, I think why one of the reasons that I am a little bit hesitant to label, like let's just talk about my ex husband for a second, mm-hmm. is because it was sort of in and out. Like he wasn't always acting like that. Like there mm-hmm. were periods of time where we were normal and he was pretty much mm-hmm. normal. But when it was bad, it was bad. Like so much gaslighting. I didn't know which way was up. I was beginning to think that I was going crazy because mm-hmm. he was telling me that I am crazy. And then he would push me to the brink of mental breakdowns and then would use that as proof that I was crazy. And it got really bad towards the end. He was living a double life and was having an affair and also lying to his girlfriend about still being married to me. And then she got pregnant and it fell apart. And then it got even worse from that, believe it or not. So, but again, like we had periods of time where it was normal and we had like what I would consider a normal and even healthy relationship. So, and I'm, welcome to the club, Andrea. We have jackets. Okay. I hate that you had to go through that. You know, I lived this too, and it, it's some next level fuckery. Um, so this is why I think of narcissism as an addiction and not as a personality disorder. Now, the clinical world, which is always 10 to 20 years behind anyway, the clinical world will classify it as a personality disorder. I do not narcissism actually functions like an addiction, which is why with you, you actually did experience periods of relative peace, relative calm, like any addiction. When the use, quote unquote, amplifies, the insanity amplifies, but people don't, you know, drug user, and I'm a recovering drug addict too. People don't use drugs at the same level, at the same severity, you know, constantly it ebbs and flows. So what I'm here, what I'm hearing you say is that there were periods of high use and periods of lower use. So I will classify narcissism as an addiction 100%. That is fascinating. And I've, I've never, I've never heard of it being talked about that way, but it makes so much sense. And some of the puzzle pieces are, are falling together and it's interesting. So I just hired a new therapist a few months ago. And part of the reason is to heal from the, the trauma from that relationship, which I feel like I didn't totally, I did some EMDR before and that was really helpful. But I, I, I came to realize when COVID hit, you know, I think a lot of people's shit came to the surface. <laughs> I've been very Just, busy. Yes. I'm sure. I was going to ask about that towards the end here, but but I hired her and 
one of the things that I that I noticed is that, and that I admitted to her, and I was I had a lot of shame around admitting it, is that I did I was gaslighting him as well. And yeah. I learned how to do it from him. And I mm-hmm. felt like I remember at the time thinking that that was my only measure of power and control was to do it back. And now that you say that it's an addiction, I'm like, I can totally see that where it was, it, it felt like I, the only shred of power to quote unquote, kind of get on top of the relationship mm-hmm. was to do it back to him, mm-hmm. which I felt terrible about. It feels shitty, you know, I, cause that's not who I am. And especially even in retrospect, I'm like, I look back and I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe I behaved like that. I did some it was crazy. It is a mess. And we also want to differentiate between kind of reacting to abuse in crazy ways and perpetrating it. So when in my relationships with high level narcissists and I had multiple, I did some really like fucked up stuff, like really bad that I, you know, I've worked through no shame, whatever. But a lot of that was in response to the abuse, the covert, the overt, the gaslighting. So there's a degree to which reactive abuse is not quite the same, but you know, again, it's an addiction. Addiction as definite, you know, to define it. So we're all talking about the same thing is anything that a person uses. It could be a substance. It could be a behavior. It could be anything to avoid their reality. They need increasing amounts of the thing. They continue to do the thing despite negative consequences. That's the definition of an addiction. That's narcissism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Reactive abuse. That's Mm -hmm. a term I've never heard before either. And that's interesting and also makes a lot of sense. Okay. We're only like five minutes in and I've already learned so much. <laughs> Next question. Okay. Well, I, you say, cause I think, and I think I pull, I'm either pulled this from your website or from another interview that you did that I heard where you say that your goal is dismantling the health system myths that keep mm-hmm. us feeling stuck and sick. So can you, can you tell us about that? Yeah, I'm a big advocate of the mental health system is imperfect. It's what we have. So my disclaimer is we need it for people who don't have access to resources. We need the DSM, which is the diagnostic manual, whatever. But by and large, the mental health system does not recognize trauma and it absolutely does not recognize the devastation that happens with narcissistic abuse. It's not talked about. You won't hear it in classrooms. You won't hear it in continuing ed. It's a very, very new subspecial. I mean, narcissism isn't new, but being able to you know, see it and work with it in the field is incredibly new. And so, you know, one of the myths is for partners is that you're crazy or that, you know, I thought I had a personality disorder because I went so, you know, off, you know, my rocker when I was in these relationships. But, you know, like we were saying, a trauma response or which is the same as a reacting to abuse is not a mental illness. And currently the mental health world will look at your symptoms, throw a diagnosis on you, medicate you, and then boom. And there's nothing wrong with medication. But if we don't take trauma into account, we're going to all as partners self-diagnose. And that's not right. That is inaccurate. That's that there's a lot to unpack in that. Yes. (laughs) So what is like, do you have a sort of like dream of of how you would like the mental health system to be, or do we not have enough hours? (laughs) (laughs) Um, My mental health system dream is that every practitioner would understand trauma, would understand Mm -hmm. the impact of trauma, would know how, you know, you you can be a licensed therapist and not know anything about trauma. You can be a licensed therapist and not understand that trauma impacts not just your 
thinking mind, but your body. And physical symptoms can be caused by trauma. So if the mental health world were all, you know, trauma trains, we'd have a lot of really wonderful, healthy people running around. Mm-hmm. So what is a sign for people that they should deal with their trauma? In other words, are there, you know, patterns or, or indicators that they should look for? Mm-hmm. And a lot of people have trouble with the word trauma. Um, you know, it's kind of like the word narcissism. Trauma gets tossed around a lot. So trauma to most people, they think of that's, you know, assault, that's war, mm-hmm. that's systemic abuse. Those are the high level, high level things. And yes, of course, those are all traumatic things. But trauma by definition, or at least the definition I use, is anything that's less than nurturing. That's the definition that they use at the Meadows of Wickenburg, which is like the mothership for everything I talk about. I've been there, actually. Me too. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Isn't it amazing? I love the Meadows. It's beautiful. I wasn't a patient. I was, um, so my, I was dating someone who lied about having cancer to cover up his drug addiction and his family sent him there. And I was pregnant with his child and ended up there for a week for family week. And that, that actually kicked off. And I started to understand my own love addiction and codependence. Mm-hmm. And anyway, we ended up not working out. He is was the second narcissist I dated, and um, but that was my that was my experience at the Meadows in Wickenburg. Yeah, it's it's a great place. Oh, that's so. We need to just we need like hours, Andrea, to talk. So, <laughs> um, so trauma is anything less than nurturing, which means it doesn't mean that everything is going to traumatize us. Nor does it mean that we all experience trauma in the same degree. But it does mean that the things that we're quick to brush off, anything, you know, um, a surgery, pregnancy, childbirth, um, you know, all those medical things, but being abandoned, finding out your partner had an affair, betrayal trauma. There's a million types of trauma and people who have it relatively quote unquote good they minimize it. It's like, well, I don't really have trauma, you know, but you know, my, to answer your question all the way around full circle, if your life isn't working the way you want it to be working and you're not thriving and happy and, you know, full octane doing your thing, you probably have some trauma and it, you know, it doesn't have to be a forever life sentence. It's not a mental illness. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but trauma is an injury. I tell people it's like your brain gets sucker punched by life and it heals. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I I love that answer. So it sounds like, you know, we all have these traumatic things that happen to us, but we don't necessarily carry the wound with us over time. Sometimes we do. Right. Sometimes we do. And oh my God, if every single thing that traumatized me, I carried, I would not be functional in the slightest. But you can always trace... Right. I mean, there's just too many things, especially in a pandemic. But, you know, what I can do with people is look at their, what are they experiencing? Where in their life? Is it in their sex life, their relationship life? Is it in their career? Are they under-functioning? Are they over-functioning? I can usually trace back the general flavor of what the trauma was by what the symptoms are. Interesting. Can you give an example of, of maybe even in your own personal life of what those symptoms are that, that you were able to trace back? Yeah. And I'm like you, I'm a love addict. You know, I won't say I am a love addict. Parts of me had an extreme (laughs) love addiction back in my untreated trauma days. So a lot of times I would end up in relationships with really, really toxic people because I had no sense of self. And if you trace that all back, that kind of falls under the mother wounds category. I always thought I had dad issues and I do, but really, you know, (laughs) failure to bond adequately with mom can turn into a whole host of relationship and eating disorder kinds of things. 
among other things. Yeah, I think we have the same life, Britt. Okay, so <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, I'm making the face over here, you know, the emoji with like the teeth showing and it's like, <laughs> that's me too. So what I heard when you said that is, you know, to, to go back and trace back the way, the language I would use is where do you get the most triggered in, mm-hmm. in your everyday life? Is it, mm-hmm. you know, in your romantic relationships? Is it more, you know, sexual things? Is it trying to have hard conversations? Is it... Um, you know, body stuff, parenting at work, you know, with mm-hmm. your male boss, with your female boss, like that's how, that's one of the things I tell people. And, and also I am, and this is, you know, and I haven't been like this the whole time. I have to, you know, take some accountability for it. Like the whole industry of personal development and toxic positivity mm-hmm. is rampant. And I, over the last handful of years, so in 2014, I went to San Antonio, Texas to get certified in Brene Brown's work and nice. um, shame resilience. And that was a huge eye-opener to me, more specifically in terms of negative self-talk. You know, And I've, mm-hmm. I've, I've talked about that and taught about it for so long, but I kept thinking like, why is this so pervasive with my mm-hmm. clients? Like, and I realized, I'm like, well, I'm, I'm putting a Band-Aid over a gaping wound and, it, <laughs> and it's really what's underneath it is shame. And so that's what opened my eyes to that. But then also as the years have gone on and looking at the personal development industry as a whole and and being trauma-informed, like mm-hmm. we just aren't enough. And right. I am a huge advocate for life coaches. It's it's unregulated yes. and I have I have my feelings about that too. And and I do just I, even if more of us were trauma-informed, I think we would I think that there's a lot of um I want to be careful with my words. <laughs> I think that it's it's an industry that can teach people unknowingly to cause harm and that that is something that we need to be more informed about. And that's true for the mental health, you know, the licensed mental health people too. You know, I've seen more accurate trauma information and definitely more accurate information about narcissism from life coaches than from therapists. So I think the problems are the same in in both arenas and the capacity Mm -hmm. to do good is the same in both arenas. It's just don't be a dick and try to find someone who's trauma informed. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And that's, that's something that I've, I've been much more cognizant about and, and just to be of better service to people and, and their hearts Mm -hmm. and their lives. And okay. So what about, let me, let me circle back to, to narcissists again Mm -hmm. and, you say that people get physically addicted to their narcissist and experience withdrawals. Yes. So talk to us about that. Yes. Oh, Lord, yes. Imagine being a heroin addict and you're, you know, injecting heroin every single day. You're going to expect at some point you're going to have to withdraw. Being the partner of a narcissist is like injecting heroin every day and not knowing and thinking that you're taking vitamin C. So, you know, that the, what happens in our brains when we're in these relationships is we have these reward chemicals because the narcissists aren't always awful. They alternate being wonderful and kind and empathetic and present and available with being avoidant and dismissive and detached and cruel and abusive. So when you alternate that, that's called intermittent reinforcement, you know. 
fancy la di da psych word. Mm -hmm. But basically, that's what Las Vegas thrives on. The payout, you don't know when you're going to get it. So it keeps you at the machine over and over and over again, hoping for the payout. That is a reaction that happens in your brain. And once you stop, you're going to withdraw. It's going to be like a phys I mean, I've withdrawn off of hard drugs and I've withdrawn off of narcissists. I thought it was harder withdrawing off the narcissist physically. Oh my gosh. My heart hurt a little bit when you explained that. So it, it's like that explains the breakup, get back together over and over again cycle in many relationships. Yes. It's like quitting smoking. You know, I'm going to quit because this is bad for me. And then what do you do? I mean, I was a smoker forever. You pick up because the withdrawal really, really sucks. You know, there's a period where your brain will start to heal. And that's about 21 days from the point of no contact with a narcissist or no ingesting if it's a chemical, but it takes 21 days to get over the mountain. And that is, a long, that is a long 21 days to be in withdrawal. Yeah. I have lived that. <laughs> right. But have, people don't know real. it's a drug withdrawal. I mean, imagine mm -hmm. a heroin addict not knowing why am I puking? Why am I sweating? Why am I shaking? And that's what happens with partners because they don't know there's a physiological, physical addiction thing on top of all the emotional attachment stuff. So knowing that you are in physical withdrawal is the first peace and being able to even make it through those 21 days. That's fascinating. I remember there was one point in my, in my second abusive relationship where, um, I, I don't think he had gone away to rehab yet. I think that we were in one of those cycles where it had gotten really bad and, and he was using again. And I was starting to get privy to everything that was actually going on and mm -hmm. starting to understand what was really happening. And I was sitting in my car at a stoplight and I I said out loud, there was nobody else in the car. And I said out loud to myself, what the fuck are you doing? Mm. And it was like a moment of clarity of like, I don't know if it was my higher self or what, just saying like, <laughs> like what girl, like what, this is, this is madness. Mm -hmm. And I went back to him, but it was, that was, I, I remember like there was these points where, you know, that must've been a time where I was, I had spent a few days away from him and was like starting to mm -hmm. have clarity. And then, but I went back and it right. very much felt like an addiction, which is madness. A, and yes. that, that point is complicated because mm -hmm. when you start to realize, because when you're in denial, like when you're deep in it, there's mm -hmm. like that little, a little bit of oblivion, like, <laughs> it's like <laughs> bliss. But then when you start to get some clarity, it's like, that's a real ass kicker. In my experience, it was. It's awful. I mean, the only thing worse than not knowing what was going on was knowing what was going on and not being able to get out. And not being able to quit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it takes an average of seven times to leave an abusive relationship. I mean, that's that they've done that research. And so it took me more than seven tries as, you know, a little slow to catch up. But there was so much that I didn't know. I mean, if I had Instagram back in the day when I was going through it, I probably would have gotten out faster. But I didn't even know what it was. I didn't even have the words to describe it until after I was already out. And then the, holy right. shit, what the hell just happened? Well, okay. So you talk about the 21 days. So can you tell us a little bit more about how someone can begin to heal from that type of relationship? Mm -hmm. So... The physical withdrawal the first week, you know, I tell people you're going to feel like you're dying, not metaphorically, you're going to physically feel and emotionally feel like the lights have gone out. It is going to be the darkest black hole well of shit. You know, if you're into, I really love like sacred feminine and Greek mythology. It's like, this is your trip to the underworld. This is your dive into Hades. 
remind yourself that's what's going on. You're going to have to tell yourself over and over again, this is, this is withdrawal. I'm not crazy. Don't believe anything you think the first seven days. And as much as you can surround yourself with people that can remind you, don't believe anything you think for the next seven days, because you're breaking trauma bonds. You're breaking physiological addiction cycles. You know, if we we don't have time to get into inner children, but you're going to feel abandoned and, you know, like you've been left out in the wild to be devoured by bears. These are all very real things that happen in those first few weeks. So, you know, burrow in, dig in, get support. It would be like preparing to come off of any hard drug. (sighs) Yeah. My armpits tingled. Like just thinking about that. It's, (laughs) I think it's such a long process too. Like for, in my experience, Mm -hmm. it's ebbed and flowed. Like it's, I've Mm -hmm. I've come, I've come lifetimes away from it, but every once in a while there's still, or if I'm doing work on something else in my life, Mm -hmm. I feel like I'll, I'll circle back to that. Oh yeah. It's part of the story. And that's the fun thing about grief is you don't get over it. It just becomes woven into the fabric of your life story. And occasionally those threads get yanked. It's like, oh wait, oh mm-hmm. hi, there's that thing. You know, it's not the focal point, but it's always there. I'm interrupting this conversation to bring you a few words about one of our sponsors. A few weeks ago, you may remember that I mentioned I was researching how to take care of my naturally and sometimes unruly wavy hair. I started following some wavy hair accounts on social media, used a few of their recommended products, but didn't get the same results they did. I needed shampoo and conditioner that was specific for my hair type and the results that I wanted. Enter Function of Beauty. It's time for you to find your go-tos that you swear by with Function of Beauty because what works for me might be completely different for you. So here's how it works. First, you take a short quiz and tell them a little bit about your hair. Next, Function of Beauty's team determines the right blend of ingredients and bottles your custom formula. Then they deliver your personalized formula right to your door in a cute customized bottle with your favorite color and fragrance. My favorite is the pear. It smells so good. It makes me want to eat it, but I do not eat it. Don't eat it. It's not edible. It just smells that amazing. And Function to Beauty is not just the first ever custom hair care brand. It is the internet's top rated customized hair care brand with over 40,000 real five-star reviews and counting. Go to functionofbeauty.com slash kickass for 20% off and let them know you heard about it from our show. That's functionofbeauty.com slash kickass. And I thank you for supporting our sponsors, which in turn supports this show. And now back to the conversation with Britt. I, I would love actually to to kind of circle over and talk about grieving our childhoods and more specifically like the things that we didn't get. Cause I, I heard you on, and I didn't get a chance to listen to the whole thing, but I heard you on another podcast where you were talking about healing from the, I can't remember you said like unsympathetic mother or something like that. Yeah. Can you, can you talk about, I mean, you don't have to get that specific with that, but just other parts of our, our lives that have our direct relation to our childhood. Yeah. And the problem here is a lot of people had relatively, you know, uneventful childhoods. And so mm-hmm. having a good, a quote, good enough mother is really, really detrimental because most people, I mean, it's, it feels really wrong to look at our moms as anything other than divine martyrs sent from heaven to nurture us into life. And people really struggle with shame and guilt. And the point is not to blame moms. Like that's the biggest 
pushback I get is, well, you're a mom. I'm not a mom blamer. It's, you know, most mothers have really good intentions, but intentions Mm -hmm. don't negate impact. So you may have had the most sweet, wonderful mother in the world, but let's say she was really sick the first five years of your life and in the hospital. It's not her fault, but you're still going to have attachment trauma. And so what we want to do is separate her intentions from what was it like for you as a daughter growing up with a human? You know, all mothers are human. No humans are perfect. Therefore, all daughters and sons, but we're talking about, you know, daughters here are going to get mother wounded and have injuries and that's okay. And it's not about blaming mom. It's about healing our wounds. And it's really important to look at it like that. Otherwise, if you are a mom, you're going to spin. Oh my God, I'm screwing up my kids. Or you're going to feel guilty. But every single person born of woman has a mother wound because all mothers are human to different degrees, right? We all have it to varying degrees. And when people say, well, I had a great mom. I'm like, okay, great. How's your relationship with food? How's your relationship with sex? How's your relationship with intimacy? And we'll go from there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yay, because mom! You'll eventually, I know, because you'll eventually, uh, you know, kind of unravel the sweater and, and get there, right? Which is really hard. But grieving childhood is necessary to become a fully functional, emotional adult. And most people don't want to do that work because one, it requires acknowledging what was less than awesome. Two, you have to get past all the shame and the guilt. And then three is the fear of what does that mean for me to really leave childhood behind? That means I don't ever get to expect unconditional love as an adult ever again. Mm -hmm. That's another podcast. Yeah. I know. I was just about to say like a lot to unpack in there as well. And I was, I was saying this on another podcast episode. I, I was talking to a friend of mine and was saying that my, my current therapist um, introduced the word abandonment depression to me. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with that term? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she talks about, you know, how it, what she sees in her patients commonly is, is around middle age where we get to this place where we're, we're, you know, we're admitting to the things that we didn't get or, or realizing the things that we didn't get and, and having to come to terms with that. And, and, you know, it, it really, again, a lot of things to unpack. One of them is that when we, I have found in my experience is that when we admit and say like, here's the things that happened that we didn't get. In some ways we are letting go that things can never be different. And mm-hmm. and I think that sometimes it can be less painful to hold on, you know, to like, maybe my parents will change now, even though they're in their, you know, seventies or, or something like that. And to, to actually admit that like, okay, things went that way. It, it, my parents don't seem to be changing. <laughs> Maybe they will, but, but it's not likely. And you just, that there's so much grief in that. And there's freedom in surrendering to the futility. And this is true with narcissistic relationships and with grieving childhood, you know, surrendering to the futility that this will ever be something different actually has freedom. That's a really unpleasant path to walk, but that path does eventually end and you get to walk back out into the sun. The other one of maybe it'll be different. Maybe it'll be different. That is a circular path that goes nowhere. And so, you know, like you said, starting with admitting, this is what this is. This is never going to be any different frees you up to do grief work because you can't grieve until you know that a loss has occurred. And if you're hanging on to that, maybe this time you haven't gotten to grief yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, as a mom myself, my kids are, um, my son just turned 13 and my daughter's about to be 11 next week. And I have 
I've gone down that path of like, oh my God, I'm going to screw them up and like trying to kind of do this like dog and pony show. <laughs> and I, it's, you know, speaking of surrender, I finally just surrendered, you know, as I sort of walked into my own, you know, family of origin therapy, I'm like, they're going to end up in therapy talking about me. They are. Uh-huh. And yeah. all I can do is my best. And also I started asking them like, how can I show up better for you? Like, I'm, I'm not mm. like, PS, I'm not saying I'm going to do it. Like, whatever they yeah. Like, buy me all the clothes I want. That's what my daughter would say. But just, I want, I want to have an open conversation for them to be able to say like, I don't like it when you use that tone with me or, you know what, like, because I'm not perfect. And sometimes I royally fuck up and do things that my own mother did to me that hurt me and relive right. these patterns. And they're just, they're going to end up in therapy talking about me. Like, Which I just hope that they feel good going. Mm-hmm. I have a, <laughs> I have an Instagram post actually for this week where it's not messing up your kids that messes up the kids. It's failure to acknowledge that you're messing up your kids that messes up your kids. So all parents are going to screw up the kids because we're all human, right? But that's we're not what actually. By humans. Yeah. <laughs> right. But that's not what causes damage. What causes damage are parents who refuse to acknowledge their own humanness. That's where the kids end up with all kinds of, you know, carried trauma and carried shame and all of that. But if you're just doing normal humaning and you bang up against stuff, hey, I did that imperfectly or saying, God forbid, I'm sorry to a kid. Those things are easy to repair. Yeah. God, I found that to be complicated. You know, I've had clients who who shared with me you know, over the last decade or so that they 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 got up the courage to write their parent a letter and say like this was my experience and and then it's met with, you know, when we work on that like, you know, you can only have control of how you show up and mm-hmm. it'd be great if they show, you know, if they responded this way, but we don't know. But you know, when the parent gets defensive and mm. says like that's not that's not how I remember it. And just dismissing their experience, like that can be incredibly heartbreaking and mm-hmm. traumatizing old wounds. And I, I get why people would avoid that conversation. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's painful. It's so painful. You know, I remember, and I'll say this here, telling my mother, you know, Hey, I experienced, you know, I think I experienced sexual abuse as a kid. And the first response I got was that's impossible. I was a good mom. That didn't happen. Oh my. Mm-hmm. So acknowledgement and validation is medicine for any type of wounding that as a parent you're inflicting on your kids. I mean, it's magic what validation can do. And listening mm-hmm. 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 and taking responsibility. I think it's just parenting has been one of the things for me that has been my biggest teacher. (laughs) Turn the mirror on me in so many ways. Oh my gosh. Um, Okay. I want to ask about 2020 and and the the civil unrest that we're experiencing. (laughs) Mm. And how has, how has COVID affected your work? I mean, beyond not being able to see clients in person. Mm. So, okay. So this one is also heavy, but a different heavy. So I had COVID. So I got to have five weeks of, oh, that's what this is. So we are in the middle of this incredibly traumatizing circumstance, but you don't actually have the symptoms of trauma until the thing is over. So right now everyone's in survival mode and we have yet to even see what does post-COVID trauma look and feel like. I know for me, like you said earlier, you know, being forced to be at home all the time has brought up everyone's shit. So I don't think I've ever been this busy in my career because all of a sudden we have time to think. And when you have time and space to think, all the unhealed content comes up. 
And something like COVID is going to trigger all of those parenting wounds, right? Because we don't know when the end is coming. We don't know if we're going to be getting sick or how we're going to stay safe. Trying to keep our children safe, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so it's going to be traumatic in and of itself, but you throw on some, you know, undealt with early childhood wounding and everything is going to get triggered. Everything is going to get triggered. And that's really what we're seeing now is trauma on top of trauma, COVID trauma on top of early childhood unaddressed trauma. Yay. Oh my gosh. What I'm curious. And, and I don't know how much you can share. Like, have you seen a pattern if anything with the people that are coming to you now, as opposed to even last year? So I think, and I can say that generically as a composite, you know, everyone has their own, their own issues, but by and large, if I was going to sum up kind of what is the heart cry of this year is I want my mom is the heart cry. Not literally, but that's the vibe. That's the feeling in the air is where's my mom? Things are scary. I don't, and I don't care how old they are. I have clients, you know, I've seen clients as young as two and as old as 80. And Mm -hmm. I want my mom is the prevailing thing. Now, if you don't have any parental woundings, you can cope with that, but that's, that's what's happening. And there's a lot of parent wounding stuff that is surprising the hell out of people who, co- who think they're coming in because they're stressed out about homeschooling, or they think I'm stressed out because my partner is here in my face all the time. But you know, when things are scary, kids want their mom. Yeah. That's interesting. And, and I don't, I, I don't know how related this is, but it just popped into my mind. I was listening to NPR last night and they were, they were talking about, they were interviewing a bunch of um, Gen Z young, young adults and young Americans, I should say. And, and it, you know, it's their first election that they're going to be able to, mm-hmm. to vote. And they were talking, you know, to all different, all different people and different beliefs and things like that. But this one young woman said what was interesting to me, and I had never truly thought about that. And she said, you know, we're the first generation to be voting now who has never known a life before 9-11. And, you know, we were born and then, you know, for a lot of them, it was a pretty bad recession. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, and and I'm (laughs) like, wow, like they, I guess I never really thought, thought of, you know, I was born 1975 where we had a long run of just Mm -hmm. like patriotism. Yay. And then, you know, I was in my twenties when 9-11 happened. And so, it was fascinating to me how that part, and then also, and I'm curious on uh, about your take on this. And what I see is, you know, baby boomers, and I'm you know, making a sweeping generalization here. Mm-hmm. They grew up where it was, um, and my parents actually were even the generation before them, which was nicknamed the silent generation, where you didn't talk about your problems, like fuck your feelings, like that whole thing. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the pendulum has swung like way the other way, and where Gen Z. They're very in touch with their feelings. And, and also like, I see a little bit of over-identification at times where, Mm -hmm. where I, I, what is your take on that? Oh boy. Okay. So (laughs) I'm with you that there's a degree to which focusing on our stuff can be detrimental. So over-identification and people get a lot, you know, I get a lot of pushback when I talk about diagnoses and a lot of them are incorrect. A lot of times we identify with our quote unquote disorders as a way of bypassing the pain that caused them. I'm going to say that again because it's important and it's a mouthful. So I would have been diagnosed with what they would have called borderline personality disorder 
back in the day when I was in my 20s. And I since learned it's complex trauma and da 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 da. But for a long time, I held on to this is my diagnosis. This is just who I am. This is my disease. Therefore, I don't have to look at all the pain and all the awfulness that created the disorder in the first place. So not for everyone and not every time I'm going to have DMs filled with, rah, but we, <laughs> we over, we can over identify with our disorders as a way of bypassing pain, which is absolutely something that happens. You know, I have college kids and teenagers who will be like, and I have this and this and this, and I have panic disorder and agoraphobia and, you know, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, well, how are you? How about let's talk about that thing that happened? Nope, nope. This is my disorder. And they come in with their notepad and their little mini DSM guides. And we absolutely use over identification as another coping skill, another bypassing avenue, which is really ironic that we use our very own diagnoses to avoid the things that created them. Mm-hmm. And, and probably in some ways to avoid having, you know, taking responsibility or taking any kind of accountability mm-hmm. for behaviors. I did that. I was like, nope, I'm a victim and I don't have to deal with my shit because mm-hmm. poor me. And then oh, I, I did too. Like seeking yeah. sympathy a hundred percent. Who's on my team? Line mm-hmm. up. <laughs> right. Right. Look how sick I am. I'm the best worst. I'm so jacked up. I'm the best worst. Love me. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. Can we have t-shirts that say that? <laughs> <laughs> I'm the best worst. I love that. Um, I appreciate you saying that because like as someone who grew up a little bit with, um, you know, the mentality of, you know, suck it up, buttercup, like just mm-hmm. keep on keeping on. I worry sometimes that I'm like, am I just not being compassionate enough? But <laughs> I, I can see both sides. Absolutely. And it's like you said, it's levels. You always want to validate pain. I don't always validate when people want to stick to the terminology or the diagnosis, but it's like, okay, forget the words and the diagnoses. You seem like you're in a lot of pain. Let's start there. That's always a good place to start. Yeah. I think too, when, you know, personally, I have been um, emotionally manipulated by Mm -hmm. By someone else. And so I tend to not trust mm-hmm. people's emotions sometimes. And I'm like, are you, is there an ulterior motive here? Are you trying to manipulate me? And so I have to be careful of that too. So that's a whole nother conversation for another time. <laughs> Yay, boundaries. <laughs> well, bound, I right. mean, a healthy, a person with healthy boundaries and all their attachment stuff dealt with can be in the presence of someone having huge feelings and not absorb it. So even if they're trying to manipulate you, if you've got your attachment shields up, it won't matter. You're unfuckwithable. Yes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I have, I have had, I had to learn to get to that place, especially mm-hmm. in the second relationship that I was in. And um, yeah, it, it's, it's possible to, yes. to heal and to move on and to get that clarity. And I am so glad that I had you on. This went by so fast. Oh my god, We covered so many things and I, I don't want to let you go before I just give you the opportunity. Was there something like kind of on the tip of your tongue or in the back of your mind that you wanted to, to say that, that we might've skipped? Yeah, because we did all the here's you have trauma, you have mommy issues, it's COVID. I also I really want to say that healing in, you know, with access to resources, the willingness to commit to the change process, healing is absolutely possible. And if one of those things isn't possible, there are levels of healing that are available. Our brains are absolute magnificent things. They are designed to heal, they are wired to heal. Healing is possible. Had to say that. 
hundred percent. All right. So people can find out more about you at the greenhouse We'll put those links in the show notes. Is there, I know you said that you're active on Instagram. Is that where you want people to go to find you? That's the best place. I'm at Brit Frank and Brit has two T's. Brit Frank on Instagram, everybody. And again, all the important links are in the show notes. Thank you so much for being here. This has been so interesting. And I took some notes over here and wrote some things down that I'm going to Google and over-identify my heart out. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you everyone for being here. You know, I am so grateful for your time. I know how valuable it is and I'm just honored that you choose to spend it here with me and my guests. So until next time, everyone, I will see you all out in cyberspace. Bye-bye. 